So if you could have uh, Psalm uh, 2 open in front of you, um, that would be of a help to you. Um, as we've already uh, mentioned um, in this service, in the very, very near future, uh, we will be uh, celebrating, uh, maybe you won't, depends on uh, where you stand on this issue, we'll be celebrating the uh, coronation of a new uh, king. Now, I don't know uh, what songs and hymns uh, King Charles III will have at his, uh, his coronation. Um, I doubt it will be Psalm 2. But Psalm 2 was a coronation song that was used in um, ancient Israel. Every time a new king would be crowned, it's, it's very likely that this would have been the song the people would have sung about him. Uh, but you probably know as well as I know that with every king of Israel that came and went, they all failed, didn't they? David, as we've already uh, looked at today, was a good king. He was a man after God's own heart. But ultimately, he, he fell into sin. He failed. And then so did, did, the king, did all the kings that came after him. There were some that were absolutely terrible, uh, and even the best ones weren't perfect. And so as, pe- as the people read this psalm and saw the new kings come and then the, ki- the old kings go, this would have seemed ridiculous to them. So who is the king of Psalm 2? Yes, it is David and, the, and his descendants, But ultimately, the king of Psalm 2 is the Lord Jesus himself. As we look at this psalm through the eyes of the New Testament, we see that there are still people today rebelling against King Jesus as he sits on the throne of heaven. You'll notice that the psalm is helpfully split up into four stanzas. You've got verses 1 to 3. And you've got 4 to 6, 7 to 9, and, and 10 to 12. And this is how we're going to uh, break it up this morning. Verses 1 to 3, we have human desire. Um, verses 4 to 6, we see the Lord's derision. Thirdly, verses uh, nine, 7 to 9, we hear the Lord's declaration. And finally, verses 10 to 12, we see the human decision. The human decision. So let's look at verses 1 to 3 together. Um, This is a human desire. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds and cast their cords from us. We see a dramatic scene here, don't we? God is facing opposition from the world. The nations, the peoples, the kings, the rulers of all the world unite together and take their stand, not only against the Lord, but against his anointed one. The word anointed here simply refers to the Lord's chosen one, his Messiah, his King. And it is ultimately he who the people of the world oppose. Now, this was certainly true of David's experience. I mean, the moment he was 
um, anointed. He, was, he fought Goliath and was mocked by him. He uh, faced opposition from uh, the jealous king Saul. When David was finally crowned king, his reign was plagued by war and conflict with the surrounding nations. However, it's not just at the time of David we see this happen. We ultimately see this happen when Jesus walked on this earth, that is, at the incarnation. Um, there is something about Jesus that even caused his enemies to find something in common with him, in common with each other. So if you look at Acts 4.25, um, 27, this is part of the apostles' prayer. They say, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant David. Why do the nations rage? Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and with the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. So what we have here is the Jews and the Romans teaming up together to conspire against Jesus and have him killed. And what is more, in, in, if you look at Luke 23, 12, the day Jesus is put on trial, we read that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Luke 23, 12, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. And as we look at the world around us, not much has changed, has it? We still see people today unite together against God and against Jesus. Every time a world government makes a, a, a decision that contradicts the Bible, we see this, don't we, in action. And by now, we shouldn't be surprised at this. A few months ago, on BBC's Question Time, one of the questions from the um, audience was, why do schools still continue to teach about Jesus, a man who lived over 2,000 years ago? The implication is that this person thought that Jesus is now irrelevant. Why do schools still need to teach about him and hold to Christian values? And the tragic thing is the entire audience applauded. And not a single member of the panel, whether they were Labour, Lib Dem, a Conservative, whatever um, party they were backing, disagreed. They were all in agreement. Partly this shows a complete ignorance, I think, of the way that Jesus has, uh, the Jesus revolution has shaped the West. But the real reason behind this is a desire for freedom. Look with me at verse 3. This is what the people are saying. This is what the kings and the rulers are saying. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's the attitude of the world. We don't need God. And we don't need Jesus. And we certainly don't need his Bible to tell us how to live. That, that is far too restricting for me. Freedom is only found when we, we, when we you know, burst the bonds of the Lord apart. When we, when we unshackle ourselves from the chains he has put on us. So we reject the Bible. We reject what, we reject what, the way that God wants us to live. Thinking that it's there, we will find our true freedom. 
This is, of course, the great lie that Adam and Eve fell for back at the start of the, start of the Bible. Remember, they're in the garden. Uh, they're, they're given all, these, uh, all this wonderful fruit and vegetation to feast on. They're, they're completely free. But Satan comes along and he twists, the, he twists the words of God. He tells them that God's trying to keep them from something good. And if they disobey him, their eyes, they'll be, they'll be free. They'll enjoy the freedom that God is stopping them from having. And we know how the story ends. They, they, they listen to the serpent. They listen to Satan. And they don't find themselves free. No, they find themselves slaves to sin. Now, if you are a Christian here today, we have to remember that this is how we once lived. There was a time when we thought we knew better. There was a time where we, we thought that God was restricting, but then we put our faith in Jesus and we saw in Jesus that he is the one who offers true freedom. Do you see that? Have you seen that? It is only by submitting to this king, it is only in Jesus do we find freedom. If you, if you don't know Jesus and your life is frustrating, maybe it's the fact that you don't know Jesus. Maybe that's why your life is frustrating. Maybe, maybe it's you've been searching for a freedom through earning money. Maybe you've been searching for freedom through uh, relationships. But now you're in a place where you can't shake these addictions. You, you, you can't, you have no joy, you have no satisfaction. It is because it is in Jesus that true freedom is found. Outside of him, we are shackled to sin. May I gently suggest that you, you, you assess your own life. You reflect on what Jesus offers you. I pray that if you haven't found the freedom that he offers you, that you find it today by turning to him in repentance and in faith. Believe me, true freedom is found in him. But the world, we read here, thinks it knows best. And so we come to verses 4 to 6. The Lord's reaction now to this sinful worldwide rebellion against him. The Lord's derision, verses 4 to 6. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Three responses then to the human rebellion. Or the first is a, is a surprising one because we might expect the Lord to immediately react with anger and wrath to our rebellion. But he, he doesn't. He does in verses 5. But look at his response in verse 4. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord looks down on the human rebellion against him. He looks down on, on the world shaking its fists at him and he laughs. And this isn't a, a funny, humorous laugh in the way that we might laugh at a, at a sitcom. No, this is almost a, a mocking laugh. As we read, he holds them in derision. Verse 5. 
And this is why God laughs at human rebellion. Because God is God. He is the true Lord from eternity past. He's always existed and he always will exist into eternity, into the future. He is the one who has created everything by the power of his hands. He just spoke and things came into existence. He's the one who commands the seas and the waves. There's a wonderful old hymn, Eternal Father, strong to save, whose arm hath bound the restless wave, who bids the mighty oceans deep its own appointed limits keep. In other words, God is in charge of how deep the ocean is. It can't be a nanometer um, deeper than what he allows. That is how sovereign and in control the God of heaven is. He is the one who is in full control of everything. Not a sparrow, not a leaf falls to the ground without his say-so. He is the one who is in charge of us. He's in charge of when we are born. He's the one who's in charge of when we, when we die. The mere fact that I am here this morning is down to him. And ultimately it is the Lord who has the final say over everything. Even our final judgment and eternal destination. He has the power to give you eternal life. He has the power to send you to hell. And it is against this very God that we foolishly shake our fists and try to dethrone. God's, that, God can't be moved by us. So that's the absurdity of human rebellion. That's why the Lord laughs. The whole of heaven erupts with laughter as it looks down at human beings trying to get God off his eternal throne. Our rebellion doesn't even threaten heaven's national security. We aren't a threat to him. Uh, the reformer Martin Luther said, it's a little bit like a small child trying to topple a castle by just throwing some twigs at it. Uh, that's, the, that's the sort of imagery we have here. But we, we've seen that God laughs. But secondly, we see that he rebukes us in his anger. He terrifies us in his wrath. That's there for us in verse 5. He will speak to them in his wrath. He will terrify them in his fury. Now this, we have to understand, isn't an isn't a uncontrolled, a flared up anger that, that, that just comes like that because he has no control over it. A bit like when we get angry if a driver cuts us up and we, we shout out the window, hey, learn to drive. That's not, the, that's not the anger God has here. The anger God has here is controlled. It is completely justified. God is holy. He is righteous. He cannot tolerate wrong. He is a God who is jealous. Now, like his anger, this jealousy God has isn't sinful. It's not that God needs our worship to fuel his ego. No, he, he's, he's happy in and of himself. He, he's triune. He's, he's got the whole praise of heaven to enjoy. So he doesn't need us. But still, he cannot tolerate our wrongdoing. He cannot tolerate when we rise up against him and, and reject him. 
when we choose to live our own way in the world that he has created. This rebellion, not, it doesn't only hold it in derision, but it infuriates him. And the third thing we see God do about rebellion is in verse 6. He places his king on Zion. Verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is Jesus. This is the righteous judge. This is his eternal son. That's what God ultimately does about our rebellion. He installs a good and just and righteous king on Zion's throne. Zion being a symbol of God's covenant with with David. And from there, the Lord Jesus rules the world. From there, he judges justly. Just as Psalm 122 says, the throne judgment stands of the house of David. So that's our second point. Third point. The Lord's declaration, verses 7 to 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As for me, I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So we have a further response now to human rebellion. Uh, and it's kind of linked to um, what we've read about in verse 6, uh, Jesus being placed on, on the throne. But we read here a statement then spoken by this very king. It seems as though he's reciting a conversation that he had with his, with his father. Um, what we have here really is David reminding the Lord of the promise he made to his descendants back in 2 Samuel 7. And this is, of course, familiar language to us, isn't it? You are my son, today I have begotten you. We see this in the New Testament, don't we? As Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan, he comes up out of the water, the spirits of God descends on him like a dove, and we have the declaration, you are my son. We see it again at the transfiguration. Jesus goes up to the mountain with his disciples. A voice comes from heaven declaring, you are my son. But ultimately we see this at the coronation then of the risen son. Now Jesus has always been God's eternal son. But when he is resurrected from the dead, he proves to the world that he is God's son. He is the king. And, under, and to him, all authority is given on, in heaven and on earth. And as a result, we read he inherits the nations. The father is willing to give him the whole universe. All he need do is ask, verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Now, this makes Satan's temptation of Jesus completely ridiculous, doesn't it? Remember when Jesus was baptized in the wilderness? He um, was baptized in the Jordan, and then he was sent into the wilderness. And there he was tempted by the devil. 
and the devil, we read, comes, comes at him uh, three times. The first time, uh, turn these stones into bread. Jesus is, of course, hungry because he's been fasting. But Jesus, of course, resists. He tells, he tells Satan to, to go away. Um, Satan comes back, takes him to the, to the highest place of the temple and tells him, throw yourself down from here. Jesus says, no, away from me, Satan. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. The final test, he takes him to a high mountain. He shows him all the nations of the world. And he says to Jesus, all this you will have if you bow down to me. And the third time Jesus says, no, away, Satan. The audacity then of Satan to offer Jesus the whole world. Now we read in this psalm that they are his. The Father will give them to him. All he need do is ask. They are his. He owns them. His Father gives him all authority in heaven and on earth. Following his death and his resurrection. He then sends his disciples out into the world that he owned and tells them, take the good news out. Preach, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to every tribe, to every tongue, to every nation. For it is them I have come to die for. That's why this is Satan's temptation was so ridiculous. No, Jesus has the nations. He rules over them. He died to save them and bring them to himself. And we read that he will actually inherit it all through conquest. Verse 9. He shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He'll rule with a rod. This is like the, uh, the rod we have in Psalm 23. Um, or maybe even the scepter that we have in, in Revelation 19, he will completely destroy the rebellion against him and the whole world will submit to him. He will, he will crush them as easily as you, you can just throw some pottery on the floor and smash it. That is the power and authority of this king. And the fourth thing and final thing that we see here Verses 10 to 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the king with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. These last few verses... Now, psalmist offers wise counsel then to the peoples, the nations, and the rulers of the world. It's simply be wise, be warned, serve the king, rejoice with trembling, kiss the sun. Now, this is a far cry from what we read about in verses 1 to 3. Remember how the psalmist begins with, with the nations and the rulers conspiring and plotting against the Lord? We are now ending the psalm with an invitation to the whole world to pledge allegiance to King Jesus. And that, that's grace. That is mercy so undeserved that rebels like us, 
um, nations and kings that have rejected the Lord and his Messiah and have gone their own way are offered a chance to turn to him in repentance and faith. Yes, he holds them in derision. He rebukes them. He has been installed as their, their conqueror. But it's not too late to pledge your allegiance and surrender your life to King Jesus. And we are given two reasons why we ought to surrender our lives to King Jesus. Uh, the one is a negative one. Um, because we, we read, because he'll be angry, you'll perish, his wrath is quickly kindled. And we read the positive one, because those who take refuge in him, those who trust in Jesus, we read, are blessed. But we, we read here again of his wrath, don't we? We're told to serve him and rejoice with fear and with trembling. How do we do that? Because those don't seem to go together. Rejoice with trembling. Well, I think C.S. Lewis uh, captures this wonderfully in the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, the, the moment where the, the children are going to meet Aslan, the lion. Um, Lucy asks, is he a man? Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver. Certainly not, I tell you. He is the king of the wood and the son of the great em emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he'd be a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. And make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're braver than most or else just silly. Then is he safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. That is why we can worship the God of heaven. That is why we can submit to King Jesus with rejoicing and trembling. No, he's not safe. He is the creator of the universe. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful, but he's good. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be horrific if God was all those things, all-powerful, um, filled with wrath, but was bad. No, we serve a king. We serve a God who is all-powerful and good. And it's because he's good that we read his wrath can flare up in a moment. Again, this isn't uncontrolled anger or wrath. No, it is good. It is holy. It's a warning to us to submit to him. The psalmist here is prophesying that this very same king will one day return. He won't, uh, this time he won't appear as a harmless child in a, in a stable. No, he will appear as the king of glory. We'll hear more about that uh, in this evening service, if that's uh, attempting for you. But it's, it's an invitation to come and to submit our lives to him. 
And the second reason we ought to submit our lives to him, as I've said, is a positive reading. It's a positive reason. It's the last few words of the psalm. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's why we ought to take our refuge in Jesus. That is why we ought to submit to him. Those who find refuge in him are blessed. Have you taken refuge in this king? Have you trusted in him? Have you seen that your rebellion against him is foolish and is not going to end well? Have you seen that he is the only righteous king? Have you seen one day that he will judge? But have you seen that he offers you refuge? And the amazing thing is, this king, the very one who offers us refuge, is the very one who has absorbed all this anger on himself. When Jesus comes to this earth, when he dies on the cross, he doesn't die as an example. He doesn't die because it was a, as a tragic accident, accident or a miscarriage of justice. No, he dies deliberately in order to offer us forgiveness. Because as he dies, he absorbs all God's anger at our sin so we can find refuge in him and live a blessed life. And all he asks of us is to accept it by faith. And it is by faith alone that we will find ourselves safe in the refuge of Jesus. That is the great human decision. What will you do with this king? Will you continue to rebel against him? Or will you turn to him and find eternal refuge in him?